Good evening. Welcome back. Man, this church loves the word. Thankful for those that came tonight. Open up again to Second Peter. Tonight we're going to be finishing uh, chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. Peter transitions here from the first part of this book to begin explaining a little bit more his motivation for writing this letter. All these great truths that we need to remember, that we covered last week, have specific purpose in our lives as believers, but also great protection and great comfort when false teachers and false doctrine in the world around us begin to creep in. And it's so important to know the truth. It's so important to remember the gospel. To know God and to know his word and to have assurance of that as we live our lives. Tonight we're going to unpack a little bit more about something we talked about last week and remembering how important God's word is. The importance of knowing scripture in our life and the importance of building that foundation of truth to stand firmly on. And tonight we're going to see the consequences of not, of not having that foundation. We're warned about a lot of things in our society today, aren't we? We're warned about things that we shouldn't eat, right? I don't really have that problem. I eat whatever I want. But a lot of things, you know, fear of health problems or whatever. People were warning me this week, don't go mountain biking, Jason. Don't do those things. A lot of times we don't heed those warnings. We do them anyway. But there's a lot more extreme things like smoking. With all the evidence we have, right, we know that smoking is harmful for us, right? But a lot of us, a lot of people just don't heed the warnings. They do it anyway. But also, on the other hand, some people take every warning and everything that they see and it's gospel. Every warning, everything that they read, it must be true. Everything that pops up on your Facebook news feed, it, it has to be true, right? I saw it on Facebook. Except we'd follow it without really knowing if it's truth or not. There's a danger both ways, wouldn't you say? So in order to really spot a fake, we have to take an active role in knowing the truth. Too often we just accept something as fact, like we just said, and fall up blindly until one day you, you figure it out on your own. It's like eating margarine for years. Not thinking anything of it, just putting it on everything. It looks like butter, right? Mar- yeah, margarine. Bob likes margarine. And just eating it. And, and then finally, one day you're like, you know, I'm going to check the label and figure this out for myself. And you read the label and you say to yourself, I can't believe this is not butter, right? You finally take a step to knowing what you're what you're being fed. Peter spends the middle portion of this book tonight with a heartfelt warning to his brothers and sisters in Christ. We know from other places in Scripture, not just here tonight, but false prophets and teachers were already on the scene in the early church. It was very important very early to establish the truth of God's Word and the surety and the foundation of it as the gospel began to go out and began to spread, and as the apostles began to die. So Peter here opens this section with a very, very great encouragement of God's word before the warnings begin. So let's start tonight, verse 16, chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Roman culture was full of myths, full of legends. And Peter's saying here in complete contrast to that, listen, we didn't make this stuff up. The first thing about Peter here is he was an eyewitness. An eyewitness not only of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry, right? He walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. He saw Jesus crucified. He saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. But here he said, I have even an eyewitness better than that. I saw Jesus in his glorified state. He saw Jesus on the mountain outside of Caesarea Philippi with James and John. He saw Jesus as the king that was going to come. He was an eyewitness to it. It's not something that was just passed down to him. He saw it with his own eyes. It was the transfiguration, a glimpse of Christ's second coming. And we'll talk about that more. But he says, though, the power and coming of our Lord. And we will see at the beginning of chapter 3, the heretics, the heresy that was beginning to spread at this time was that they either did not believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ or they were distorting it. So Peter's saying, listen, I saw him. I know he's coming back. So stay with me here. Believe what I have to tell you. I saw it. And not only was Peter an eyewitness, but he was an ear witness as well. Christ's been talking about his death to the apostles. And again, he'd been very, all the apostles were very confused. Aren't you supposed to usher in the kingdom right now, Jesus? Why are you talking about your death? So Jesus takes up three disciples to encourage them, to show them, listen, I am who I said I am. And I'm going to come back. And to make even the testimony more sure, other than seeing Christ glorified, they hear God. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it says, listen to him in the gospel. What an amazing experience Peter had, right? What an amazing experience Peter had to have eyewitness testimony and actually hear it. I would think in a court of law that would be pretty convincing. But why do we believe Peter? Why do we have such confidence that Peter's experience was legitimate? Why do we believe it? Verse 19 is a very important verse in this. And Peter enforces the point by saying, listen, we have more confidence in the prophetic word. The Old Testament as a whole, but scripture as a whole. He says, pay attention. The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Listen, the logos has been revealed. The word became flesh and is here. What a great encouragement. But the reason verse 19 is so important. I love this verse, verse because it confirms experience with Scripture. 
Literally, the Greek order right there of that is, and we have more sure the prophetic word. Meaning God's word is reliable. God's word is the source of this truth. Always has been, always will be. So what he's saying here is, this experience I had simply confirms something that's already true. The experience does not validate scripture. Scripture validates the experience. That's a very, very important distinction. He quotes Isaiah 42.1. That was from the Old Testament. If you remember at the baptism of Jesus, they also hear the same thing from God. This is my son, right? But also remember, the entire Old Testament is looking forward to this king, this Messiah that would return. And Peter's saying, listen, I saw him. I saw the one that we're waiting for. I saw the one, the promise of the Davidic covenant, the one that will rule forever. My experience is confirmed by the word of God. That is precious. That should give us such confidence in his word. And it gives Peter such great confidence to speak about these things to us. It's like gravity. Gravity is sure. We know gravity exists. We have all the evidence to support that gravity is here, all the science and everything. And yet, when we fall off a cliff, we experience it, right? But we don't have to fall off a cliff and have that experience to know that gravity exists. It's something we already know. God's word is sure. Peter's saying God's word is the root of this truth. God's word is the anchor and the foundation of my experience. And, and just because you don't experience something also doesn't mean it's any less true. We live in a culture, even in a Christian culture, that's beginning to be very dominated by emotions, aren't they? I do whatever I feel. This feels right, so I'm going to do it. The Holy Spirit told me to do this. Or like Paul talked about this morning with Pilate, what is truth? This postmodern idea that truth is relative to you. Whatever your experience is, is truth for you. But when you take a verse like Jeremiah 17, 9, that says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? How can we possibly measure our experiences with our own heart? How can our experiences dictate truth when we know our hearts and how wicked they are? There has to be a foundation, and that foundation is God's word. So I would ask, yes, first of all, yes, our salvation was an experience, right? Yes, it's something we experience. We experience the Holy Spirit. We experience God in our lives every single day. But we experience it through the lens of Scripture. Always go back to Scripture. Does my experience line up with the Word of God, the character of God? And that's what Peter's trying to encourage us with. My experience lines up with Scripture. And in verse 21 and 22 there, or sorry, 20 and 21, you have to be a little careful reading this passage here, but what's really saying is no one just sat down one day and decided, I think I'm going to write these things down for God. They didn't do it on their own initiative. Now he's likely referencing Old Testament scriptures, but the Greek there is a little bit more broad, probably referencing the New Testament as well, because Peter is aware of the things that Paul has written 
in his letters. And we'll see that in chapter 3. And he's saying, listen, me, Paul, the prophets of the Old Testament just didn't sit down one day and decide, oh, I think I'm going to write these things down. But rather, they were moved by God, moved by the Holy Spirit, and through God's direction wrote these things down for us. They opened their sails and let the Holy Spirit move them. And if God is the origin of Scripture, how can we not have great confidence in that? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That is the source of our truth. And in context of what Peter's going to talk to us here in chapter 2, I think it's safe to also say that no person has the ability to interpret Scripture on their own either. And what I mean is you can't do just whatever you want with Scripture. You can't. And I think that's true because that's exactly what the false teachers do. That's exactly what Peter's going to talk about. And it's not that they deny prophecy. It's not that they deny Scripture. It's not that they deny God. But they twist it. They twist it to fit their own agenda and their own appeal to the flesh. And that's where the danger is that we're going to look at tonight. We cannot play fast and loose with Scripture. Scripture was intended to carry an idea about God. And taking that idea and applying it to our lives. You know, one time I heard a person teaching on the feeding of the 5,000. And they... They got through it. And we know that great story, right? Jesus used that for such a great teaching moment to show the hearts of the people that they were only coming for sustenance. He was saying, listen, I'm here. I'm the bread of life. But this person took this passage and said, what if, what if just Jesus inspired this boy and what he have and the boy gave and therefore inspired everybody else in the crowd to give what they had? So she took that, that person took that To say, listen, it was about giving. Is that what Jesus was trying to teach there? No. But that person took that to fit their own idea of what they wanted to feel about God or their teaching. We cannot and must not do that with God's word. So Peter's encouraging us here, since the start of this book, to have extreme confidence. What he's going to say, have extreme confidence in the word of God. And how important it is here because we have to have confidence in these truths that we believe. Because heresy is in your midst. You have to be firm in your faith when these false teachers start to infiltrate. Or you're going to have problems. So before we get into that real quickly, how you, listen, you have to believe in the truth of God's word. Because if you're hit with error, where are you going to go to find out it's an error? Where are you going to go? How in the world could a person who does not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture defend themselves when an error arises? How can you do it? Do you simply pit your intellect against the intellect of the other person and just hope it falls on whoever's greater truth, right? Whatever truth is good for you? No, no, no. We go back to the Word of God. Because this book has everything for life and godliness. We talked about that last week, right? Everything. How precious is that? We have everything right here. 
so we can stand in the world and minister truth to the world. But we need not be ignorant of the error and the heresy that's around us. So let's read in this next section and listen to what Peter has. This is a really, this is a lot of warning in this next section. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. No, false prophets are nothing new under the sun. They existed then, they existed in the Old Testament, and they exist now, and they're going to exist in the future. Jesus warns of false prophets during his ministry. Paul warns about it several times in his letters. The warnings have always been there. Believer, beware. So don't be deceived by their secrets, he says. Don't be led away with their appeal to your flesh. And have confidence because God is in control. Be found faithful. Stand for the truth. Stand for the truth knowing that God has control and his dealings with the false teachers, his dealings with sin and those who oppose him are not a secret. And that's what we see in 4 through 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God's dealings with mankind and false teachers and sin and those who oppose him are no secret. You know, people often accuse the Old Testament God as mean. And I would say to those people, have you actually read the Old Testament? Because God's mercy, his grace are poured out on the nation of Israel, and even her enemies at times. But the beauty and the grace all comes under God's justice as well, doesn't it? That those who oppose God, God is just. God is holy. God is perfect in His righteousness. And He cannot be in the presence of sin. Sin must go punished. If He is a just God, sin has to be punished. And that's why the beauty of a cross is so beautiful in light of that, right? To look at these examples, even just the few that he gave on the wrath God poured out on some in the Old Testament, to think it take all that and everything else and all of our sin of all time placed upon Jesus Christ to give you just a, a little picture of what Jesus Christ took for you and I. And rejecting that is rejecting our only way out. Our deliverance from judgment. And God will judge those who turn from him. We know that. We see it here. With his dealings with mankind in the past. God makes good on his promises, doesn't he? Absolutely. We believe that. 
So Peter reflects on these three Old Testament stories here and one later on those who reject God. But also, do you see the amazing thing in those stories? He saves those who stand for the truth. He saves those and cares for those in his sovereignty to deliver those who would stand for the truth. Stand for his word. So he said, God judged the angels, possibly referring to Satan when he's cast out of heaven or the Nephilim in Genesis 6. But in either context, he's saying, listen, not even the angels escape God's judgment. Then the entire world was destroyed in the ancient world in the time of Noah. For all the sin and all the ungodliness that was going on in the world, Luke 17 says that the people enjoyed their sin all the way up until the time of the flood, didn't they? Despite Noah preaching repentance for 120 years. You see, not even in large numbers can God's judgment be thwarted, can they? Even if the whole world turns against God, God is still just. Today we have people lobbying all over the place. Rallies, petitions, laws. To rally for sin. To actually make sin a law. Abortion, homosexuality, you name it, right? Do they really think their numbers will impress God? (laughs) Because God saved just seven, didn't he? And destroyed the whole world. But Noah was found faithful. He stood for the truth. God told him that and he said, this is what I'm going to do in the face of persecution and all these that would say otherwise. He stood for the truth and God saved him. And then we see the story of Lot there and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which they're they're made an example of, of Scripture. No more flood. But in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were reduced to ashes. It was a, a town that was littered with sin, idolatry, homosexuality. It's a pattern of it's what what is going to happen to the ungodly. But see, again, in God's sovereignty, he rescued righteous Lot, didn't he? A righteous man. So yes, God's judgment is real. And his sovereignty and his dealings with sin and those that would oppose him are true. But we cannot be ignorant of the dangers around us. And Peter now is going to describe in very graphic detail the true nature of these people. Starting in verse 10 there. Bold, or excuse me, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrain the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. 
For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, so that he is enslaved, or to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Pretty graphic. And the scary reality is these people are in our midst. And they were then and they are today. Just to conclude that whole section, they they love flesh and they despise authority. They're the ruler of their own lives. They're selfish, yet they're very ambitious for sin. They blaspheme God willfully. There's no fear of God in them. Their instincts are like animals. They love to sin no matter who sees it. They actually do it in the daytime. A lot of people do their sin under the cover of darkness, but not these. They want everybody to see it. They have an unquenchable appetite for sin. They are very deceptive in their ways. They entice unstable souls and they're trained in greed. They actually practice at it. They love their sin so much that they're not satisfied until others join in with them. And they exploit it for money and for pleasure. When I was reading through this, something came to my mind. I think a beer company recently has gone to great lengths to promote their product. And this just came to my mind. Creating this entire town, okay? This entire town to invite you. Come. Join in the party. Join in the drunkenness. Come lust. Come enjoy your scene or sin with the tagline. Whatever happens. Whatever happens. And then they say, are you up for whatever? Are you up for whatever? I wonder if that was the motto for Sodom and Gomorrah. They are so blinded in their pride and their arrogance that they're no different from, he says, Balaam. The false prophet who tried to destroy Israel But his plans were interrupted by a talking donkey because no amount of human reasoning was going to sway Balaam, right? But God used a stupid donkey to say, listen, Balaam. He talked sense into him. But the frightening reality of this whole thing is that, again, these people are actually in our midst. So verse 13 says they, they carouse with you, they feast with you. They entice unstable souls, verse 14. They entice by fleshly desires and sensuality those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, verse 18. And they promise freedom, verse 19, only to invite you to become slave once again to the things that you are free from in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the world around us, is it not? And these people are infiltrating the church in large numbers. Promises of a life full of joy, 
promises of a life full of pleasure, promises of your best life now, right? All to be deceived into thinking that that is truth. It's like a 500-pound man trying to sell you a diet book. He's trying to sell you something. He promises you freedom, but he himself is entangled in the very sin he's trying to free you from. They promise freedom from your problem. But Satan and those dominated, Satan and those in the world want nothing more to see the truth of Christianity fall, don't they? To see the righteous lose faith, to see the Christian kid get school or at school get drunk for the first time, to see marriages destroyed, that those claiming that they are Christians, and because of our flesh, because of the heart of man, this is a reality, and it's a reality only because we are not rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word. Chapter 1 is so instructive leading into this section, guys. So instructive, especially what we just read tonight. Because if we remember that we have everything here, we have truth. We remember our salvation and we have confidence in these things. We can stand against these things. Because if we don't, we develop, like he says in chapter 1, spiritual amnesia, right? Nearsightedness. We forget. And then these kind of people, these kind of people will overtake us when we are not rooted and grounded in the truth of God. These people have knowledge of Christ. They have knowledge of even the Bible. And the truth becomes weaved with heresy and with sin. And things began to sound pretty good. So many cults and false religions promote these things. Promote, they deceptively introduce sin all under the banner of truth. All under the banner of Christ, don't they? So many today. And they lead people astray. And they, they appeal to your flesh in this feel-good message. And then hook, line, and sinker, you're in. Because it feels good. Again, it goes back to your emotions. It feels good. But what does God's word say about it? And it says they so discreetly introduce and invite us to sin. Those who don't know the truth. Just discreetly. Things like, hey, hey man. Look at that girl over there. Or hey, I'd like to talk, I want to talk to you about my stupid husband. Or hey, let's go to the bar and have a few tonight. It seems so simple on the outside, doesn't it? They entice you because it appeals to your flesh. But knowing God's word defends us from following these cues. Knowing the truth of God's word defends us from submitting. Because then we can say, no, I will not gossip. I will not lust. I will not be drunk because I know what God's word says about it. And I love the Lord Jesus Christ and I want to follow him. When we don't invest in the word, we don't know what's true. These people don't know what's true. They forgot about their cleansing. And now they're like a lemming with the rest of the world. 
And now they return to the very thing that made them sick in the first place. Like Peter says here, they return to their own vomit. They return to the very thing that made them sick. This, this is a battle. There's no doubt about it. This is a battle. That we live in this world. We have to be in the world, but not of the world. So I go back to it a little bit that we talked about last week, that we must remember how important God's word is. That our salvation, our called believers as believers to grow and have that knowledge, right? To be growing in our faith. So when this stuff pops up, we can defend ourselves. But we can also not just defend ourselves. We can go on the offensive. And speak the gospel. Speak truth in this dark place. To have confidence in the face of persecution. In the face of these clever arguments. So I urge you, brothers and sisters in Christ tonight. To be rooted and grounded in God's word. Because Satan is real. And the enemies of the cross are many. And we must be prepared for battle. This warn, This section is a really, really stern warning. But do you see what a great confidence it is as well? Because this book that you hold in your hands has everything for life and godliness. And it is 100% true. What confidence! You have it right here! Everything. You don't have to go any other place. And there's an urgency in Peter. We know again he's at the end of his life, don't we? This is really important to his heart. To have extreme confidence in this book. But we also have an opportunity to be light in the darkness. Look at verse 19 real quickly once again. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. God's word is that lamp. Psalm 119.105 Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. We follow it. We preach it. We teach it. Until he returns. That's what he's talking about there. We do it until the morning starts. Until he comes back. Because that's what Peter's going to talk about. And that's what he's talking about even in that section. I saw the risen Christ. We are going to do these things. We are going to believe this truth until he comes back. And I know he's coming back because I saw it and I heard it. Open this book. Examine it. Read it. Examine me on what I say. Get involved with the Bible study. Go through the morning program. Desire to have more knowledge in the word of God. Whatever you can, know his word. So that you do not be led away by these types of people. And so that we grow to be able to more, be better equipped to preach the gospel. And better equipped to talk to people and engage this world that we live in. And we do it again until the king returns. Just like Peter saw, right? Just like he saw, I saw him. I know he's coming back. And when he does come back, guess what? For you and I as well, we're going to say, yeah, I know it's true. Because I saw it in Scripture. Right? I saw it in Scripture. Let's pray. Father, your word is so precious. 
God, I pray we desire your word like food. Lord, you are the bread of life. We need you for sustenance, Lord. We need you in our lives every single day. We need to be fed. We need to be challenged. Our heart needs to be molded and sanctified into your likeness. Lord, so that we can preach your gospel with boldness. Lord, that we can present ourselves as faithful followers of Jesus Christ until your return. Lord, that we might see many come to know you until the kingdom comes and we can see you face to face, Lord. And thank you for everything that you've done for us, Lord. And also giving us our instruction from your word, Lord. Lord, to have such confidence Such confidence in knowing that this book is true should lead us to utter amazement that we have access to this on any time we want. Lord, that we might be moved to take action in opening this book whenever we are moved, Lord. Thank you for tonight, Lord. Pray that we leave changed and renewed and refreshed. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.